Dan O'Flaherty is professor of economics at Columbia University, specializing in urban policy and public finance. He is the author of several books, including Making Room, The Economics of Homelessness, City Economics, How to House the Homeless, and most recently, The Economics of Race in the United States. Here's why I wanted to talk with Dan. He has put together a comprehensive look at the connections between race and economics, which is a rare contribution within his field of economics. And his scholarly credentials are matched by his deep commitments to the civic life of his hometown of Newark, New Jersey. Welcome to the Dean's Table, Dan. Thank you, Fred. You have written that your parents made sure that you lived in a racially integrated world. You were the only white kid in your first grade class in Newark. As you know, uh, 1967 uh, was a very crucial year in the United States. There were two major race riots that occurred in the United States, uh, one in Detroit and one that you should know a lot about, um, and that happened in Newark. What do you remember about the Newark, Newark riots? Okay, I was in going into junior year in high school then, mm-hmm. and my mother was the secretary of the local assistance board, so that was the general assistance at that time. She had to sign the welfare checks, so the police came mm-hmm. uh, with shotguns sticking out the windows to mm-hmm. get her to sign them. The atmosphere was a little crazy at the was, was was tense in the first week of school. And people didn't know how to do it at, at high school. Uh, and then throughout the fall, there were rumors and rumors and rumors that there was going to be another riot, mm-hmm. which didn't happen. And how, and how did the Newark riot start? Um, it was uh, a cab driver, John Smith, uh, was arrested on South 19th Street. He was brought to the 4th District, which was next to Hayes Homes, a large housing project. Uh, There were lots of rumors about what was going on. Uh, People from CORE, especially my my good friend, the late Bob Kirvin, were there. From CORE? From CORE. The Congress of Racial Equality, which was a civil rights organization. Yeah. There were stones thrown uh, and shots fired, and then for the next three or four days, there there was a great deal of of shooting. Mm. Mm. Probably mainly by the National Guard. Wow. I mean, Detroit and Newark were close to the the largest incidents of police killing Mm -hmm. of civilians in in, the past 50 years. Oh, really? We don't quite know about the California, the the, the two Los Angeles riots, which had more deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the proportion of civilians killed by police in Detroit and Newark were very high. Mm. I didn't know that. The, the um, main story, as the Kerner Commission tells it, uh, is that almost all, all of the firing was done by police. It was panic. Mm-hmm. A lot of, of the activity was concentrated around three or four large apartment projects with 15, 16-story high buildings mm-hmm. uh, that the National Guard, especially who were totally scared, believed were the scene of snipers. They heard shots. It turns out mainly those were shots fired by other National Guardsmen. Mm-hmm. Quite a few civilians were killed. Same thing happened in Detroit, although not, it's not high-rise. The, the interesting thing to, to Rajiv and me mm-hmm. 
is that one section of Detroit did not have National Guard. Instead, it had paratroopers who were well-trained, and their section of Detroit was very peaceful once they arrived. National Guard in Newark fired around 11,000 rounds of of ammunition Mm -hmm. in two or three days. The paratroopers in Detroit fired around 200 and were much more successful Mm -hmm. because they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And this is, Rajiv and I are interested in these these as as game theorists and we're we're interested in these escalation situations where people kill in order to avoid being killed. Right. I want you to to think more about how did that, that the rebellion uh, in Newark influence your understandings of race? Um, it influenced my understanding about race, I think, because I no longer saw it as something that just happened every day, but something that could cost people their lives mm-hmm. and uh, was was dangerous and uh, was an area where things could go in ways that were, were not day-to-day at all. Mm-hmm. I, I got accepted to Harvard. Well, yeah. So what was it like for you when you, you when you got to Harvard? Did you, when you ended up there, you knew you wanted to be an economist? I thought so. Basically, I stayed in economics. Mm-hmm. And, and I was interested in city things. So that's where you began to become interested in urban yeah. economics? Do you yeah. remember who you work with, the courses you took? There, there, there was no undergraduate urban economics course. Hmm. In graduate school, I took an urban economics course. Okay. The problem was I was working full-time in Newark and commuting back and forth. Really? In graduate school, just about full-time. How did you manage that? With difficulty. So I wasn't always that awake. And it was just... After going to a couple of classes and staying awake for less than 10%, I decided this was not for me. I started working in City Hall with Harry Wheeler, who was Director of Employment and Training, and Ken Gibson. And Ken Gibson, by the way, is the first African-American to become mayor of Newark. Yeah. So what that experience was like, did you gain understanding oh, about I, urban? It was an incredibly good learning experience. What were you doing there? Mainly the employment and training things. Oh. So uh, partly it was interesting because it was the large public employment programs coming mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that gave me exposure to the rest of city government. I remember my first experience when I'd been there for just a couple of weeks. We, we were getting the first public employment money in. And my job was to go talk to the director of public works to see what he wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. The mayor had told Harry Wheeler, my boss, that, that he was concerned that he'd been getting lots of complaints from Madame Juritza, who was an, an opera star uh, who lived in the Forest Hill section of, of Newark. There was a problem with the storm sewers mm-hmm. uh, in her, her neighborhood. And I, I went to talk to the public works director about this. Mm-hmm. And he told me about this and that and the other thing, things that he needed. And I said, you know, what, what can we do about Madame Juritza? Mm-hmm. I said, the, the problem is that there's a backup with the storm sewers flowing into Newark Bay because they have to get over 
to New Jersey Turnpike, which is right along Newark Bay. Mm -hmm. And so we, we really need to build a pumping station uh, so that the water can get to Newark Bay. And that's the holdup. And I'm sorry, you know, we can't do anything mm -hmm. for Madame Jaritza except get the pumping station. And that sounded good to me because this is my first time in the mayor's office. Mm -hmm. 19 years old or something like this. I got it all together. I'm going to, to see this famous, important person. Um, and he asked me about Madame Jaritza, and I explained, okay, Sam told me all about this, and he needs the pumping station. He can't do anything for Madame Jaritza. Mm -hmm. and, and so the mayor just took out a little pad of paper. He's always got his little pens and little pads of paper, and he draws a topographical map of Newark. Mm -hmm. And he says, water flows downhill. Mm -hmm. If the problem that Madame Juritza is having is caused by the lack of the pumping station, we would be underwater now. Uh, so I learned about equilibrium. <laughs> Which is an important principle within economics. So what, so what, what was like, though, being a graduate student at Harvard in economics at the time that you were there? It was challenging and interesting. I don't know how much attention I paid to it. I followed the rules. I learned mm -hmm. things. There were lots of good courses. Mm -hmm. I learned none of the culture. Mm -hmm. There were good people. I, mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I was influenced by many people. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Schelling. Oh, you work with Tom Schelling? A little bit. I took his class as an undergraduate. That was the best class ever. And for our listeners, because we know who Schelling is. So Thomas C. Schelling was an economist who won the Nobel Prize as one of the leaders of game theory. Mm -hmm. He had enormous insight and incredible ideas of how the world works. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a, a large part of my friends have spent their entire careers developing models that Schelling wrote in a paragraph or so. You would say he influenced a great deal? Of... I think he influenced me a great deal. So as an economist, though, you've written a lot of books. Yeah. Uh, most economists just publish their research and journal articles, never writing one book. Why have you written books as an economist? Because I wanted to. Uh -huh. Because it turned out my ideas were more, book, more book size than mm -hmm. article size. Article size. Because uh -huh. I liked really long projects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And partly because I wanted to communicate with large numbers of people. They never work for that purpose. But mm -hmm. for many purposes, it strikes me as the best way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So getting back to the question of uh, writing about homelessness, how, how did you get interested in that? Uh, this was, was early when I didn't quite know what I was supposed to do as, as an academic. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching principles, principles of economics, and this is early 90s, late 80s. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that I wanted to tell students that, that economics had something to do with the real-life problems that they see every day in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that time, the, the real-life problems that they see every day in the world included homelessness to a large extent. So I decided I would talk about homelessness in principles. So I read the literature about homelessness and economics, and after 15 minutes, I decided I had my pick. <laughs> it was a huge crisis when the family homeless population hit the 5,000 level, mm. 
5,000 a year. 5,000 families in New York City. Okay. Uh, the Bureau, National Bureau of Economic Research is major empirical group mm -hmm. had started a project on extreme poverty in developed countries. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Freeman and David Bloom, who was in the chair at Columbia, were running this project, and they decided they needed a somebody to write a paper about cross-national comparisons of homelessness. There was only one person they could think of, so I started on that project. Okay. In, in writing cross-national comparisons in different cities, I got together huge amounts of it, literature. I wrote lots of theory. Mm -hmm. And what's the theory on that? The, the theory is filtering, mm -hmm. uh, which was big in, in housing at that time. The, the basic story in the United States is that poor people get almost all of their housing as, as hand-me-downs for middle-class people. Mm -hmm. So what was happening in cities like New York where the, the big growth in homelessness was, was that the middle class was shrinking. Mm -hmm. If the middle class shrinks, then you lose your the amount of housing that can be filtered down to poor people because mm -hmm. poor people stay the same size, and it increases the price. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we saw. Okay. So what do you want people to know about your research on homelessness? Uh, I just published a review paper after mm -hmm. 20 years. Oh, really? What we know uh, about homelessness now is that it responds to housing subsidies. Mm -hmm. The only thing we know that it responds to is housing subsidies. Mm -hmm. Most of the other kinds of interventions don't have much of an impact. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know whether the housing subsidy, the, the powerful element of the housing subsidy is the housing or the subsidy. Mm -hmm. so we don't know whether money would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever you're going to do with housing, with homelessness, is some arrangement of housing subsidies. Mm -hmm. That arrangement has all sorts of problems of moral hazard and all sorts of problems of adverse selection, mm -hmm. which makes it a very difficult problem, which is why you need economists to think about it mm -hmm. and not about other stuff. It is doable. The, the bad thing is that homelessness is decreasing in most of the United States, mm -hmm. except in the two biggest media markets, mm -hmm. uh, which are New York and Los Angeles, mm. both of which have extraordinarily poor policies. What have you learned uh, from your research on homelessness that you think listeners will find surprising? Um, that the number of the number of mentally ill people outside of institutions did not increase during the time that homelessness rose. Oh, now that's a surprise. The homelessness began rising in 1979, 1980 in mm -hmm. New York. Most of the institutionalization uh, was over by the mid-70s. The deinstitutionalization, the reduction in mental hospital population mm -hmm. uh, that took place after that period was primarily the elderly. The early 70s bring in Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And with Medicaid, elderly people can go to nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So the nursing home population shot up among the elderly. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, although not the most desirable thing, starting in, in the late 70s, the incarcerated population shot up. Mm. And I mean, now the jails are the largest mental institutions around. Mm. If you put those two numbers together, 
with the uh, nursing home numbers. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was a, a trans-institutionalization rather than deinstitutionalization, which, whether it was wise or not, did not put people on the street. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your most uh, recent book, The Economics of Race in the United States. So I find it interesting that you didn't start with the classic text on race and economics, Gary Becker's The Economics of Discrimination, which was published in 1957. Um, Becker, who won a, a Nobel Prize in economics, argues in, the, in that book that whites have a preference, what he described as a taste for discrimination, right? In your book, you start not with Becker, but with classic arguments from the turn-of-the-century black leaders Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. You also draw from the mid-century titans of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Why these thinkers as a way to frame your book and not Becker? Why, why did I start with Booker T. Washington rather than Gary Becker? One, Booker T. Washington is before Gary Becker. Right. Two, Washington and Du Bois are debating what I think are the major issues that people care about in race in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, they care about uh, whether the situation of African Americans is a residue of bad things that happened long ago, mm -hmm. or whether continuing discrimination and other kinds of phenomena are as important or more important. Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois set that out very, very clearly. Mm -hmm. They care about which markets, what areas matter. Mm -hmm. Becker deals with labor because everybody at Columbia was dealing with labor at the time. Mm -hmm. Labor actually does not appear as, as a major issue, especially to Du Bois. Du Bois is more concerned about politics. Washington is more concerned about education. And if, if you read Myrdal, labor is, is a secondary issue. Mm -hmm. To white Southerners, labor labor is like 15th or 16th of importance after anything to do with, with black bodies and white bodies touching. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the, the central issues of race are not in Becker. Okay. To, to me, Becker really isn't about preferences. Okay. Becker doesn't care why, what causes white attitudes. Right. He's doing something very much in the, in the shelling tradition, mm -hmm. uh, which is he's asking, how do these attitudes get translated into actual outcomes? Mm -hmm. And shelling is the one who has taught us that attitudes and outcomes are not the same thing. Right. Becker has become a sort of a story about some of the mechanisms in labor markets that attitudes either get changed into outcomes or not. Okay. In your book, you examine racial disparities in detail from employment and earnings, home ownership, education, health, to wealth. What does your analysis tell us about how we can close the gap in wealth and social well-being between blacks and whites? I think that the first thing is that it probably makes sense to work in all dimensions simultaneously because each dimension is a constraint on the others. Mm -hmm. And what, what happens as, as you tell the story of each, you say, oh, 
you're tell, talking about labor, I really have to know about health because health matters to labor. If you're talking about health, I, I really have to know about implicit attitudes and I have to know about education of doctors. Mm-hmm. And you, you go around in these circles and the circles are interesting. On policy, it says things, things have to be done in lots of, lots of directions at the same time. Wealth by itself mm-hmm. is, is not a solution that will work. Housing by itself is not a solution that will work because the, the other things happen uh, around it. Okay. So what's your thoughts then on um, reparations as a policy prescription to close the wealth gap between blacks and whites? Uh, that's easy. Mm-hmm. I think there are good arguments for reparations. Mm-hmm. Closing the wealth gap is not one. Mm-hmm. The wealth gap will return in, in a couple of generations to where it is now if the world continues to work the way it does. A, a one-time infusion of cash uh, will not make a difference for very long. If you look at the equations, you look at the intergenerational things, as long as the intergenerational process is what it is, as long as the United States works the way the United States works, then wealth disappears, wealth differences disappear in a generation or two. The strongest one is Altanji's finding that the marginal propensity to bequeath uh, out of current wealth is about 2%. If I gave you $100, mm-hmm. your kids would see $2 of it. Because? Because you have a life to live. Mm-hmm. But it depends. What I, well, $100 is different from $200 million, right? Yeah. If you were to get $200 million, it would make a difference to your right. life. The, the point is, is that it depends on what the infusion it, is. It depends on what the infusion is, and it doesn't appear that there are, are kinds of magic numbers, mm-hmm. or the magic numbers are really pretty big. Mm-hmm. This is really a terrible story, but it's well documented in economic history. Uh, this is about the the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. Native Americans. Native Americans were were the the Cherokees were were sent out of Georgia mm-hmm. in in the eighteen thirties. As a result of that, Georgia held a lottery on on the land uh, in which all white males could participate, mm-hmm. and gave out randomly large chunks of Cherokee land to randomly chosen white males. Mm-hmm. Current worth, I think, would be about half a million. Mm. Two generations later, the descendants of lottery winners were indistinguishable from the loser, from lottery losers. What we inherit from the past mm-hmm. is attitudes and belief and how we treat each other and what we think of each other, mm-hmm. not money. Lowry's argument on, on reparations is something to, to paraphrase is, is that our attitudes about race, our beliefs about stigma are the most important things we inherited from the past, not uh, monetary things. Okay. So what about your, your views on baby bonds as a policy prescription? Can you tell our audience what baby bonds are? Baby bonds are giving s- relatively small amounts of money mm-hmm. to people either at birth or being invested to age 18. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm reasonably skeptical of it. The, the amounts of money that we're talking about are like $1,000 or two mm-hmm. or $3,000, mm-hmm. uh, which are probably not going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. It's always good to give money to poor people. Mm-hmm. But if you think that will make major differences, 
I suspect that it won't. Okay. So let's talk about your public service a, a bit. Um, you've worked for and advised various mayors in the city of Newark. What has that experience been like for you? Um, it's a learning experience. All of them have been very, very bright. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they listen to me and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I think I have the, the healthiest relationship with the current mayor. Oh, okay. Who is? Raz Res, Baraka. Uh-huh. In that if he wants to listen to me, that's fine. If he doesn't, then we, we talk when we want to talk, and we don't talk when we don't want to talk. If he agrees, fine. If he doesn't disagree, fine. With Sharp James, we ended up in sort of an antagonistic relationship. Sharp James is not someone I ask for advice. I tell what to do if he listens. Similarly, Cory Booker and Raz Baraka. And that's, that's sort of the distinction. You were critical of Cory Booker, weren't you? I ended up, yeah. I, I, I originally drank the juice, mm-hmm. but over time, uh, his performance on the MUA, on the budget, on the water system, on the budget, on the Watershed Corporation, mm-hmm. uh, just convinced me that he was, was not up for the job. Mm. You wrote an op-ed titled The Curse of the Celebrity Mayor. Um, what was that criticism really about? Was it about what you just described of him not being up to the... Yeah, that was. it was more emphasis... It was less emphasis on water because I had written a lot about water. Mm-hmm. Uh, more emphasis on other things and, and also an analysis of why he wasn't a successful mayor. Mm-hmm. You think he failed Newark in some yeah. ways? Yeah. yeah, he was not a successful mayor. And why, why, why wasn't he successful? Why do I say or why wasn't he? Yeah, why do you, <laughs> why why do do you say? say? Why do I say? Okay, so if, if you look at the banner issues of newer politics, it's crime and, and taxes. Mm-hmm. For the most part, crime went up a little bit on burglary and murder, it wandered around. So this, relative to the rest of the United States, crime went up in Newark while he was mayor. Mm-hmm. This was a time of declining crime in the United States, and mm-hmm. Newark was wandering around, and in fact going up relative to the rest of the United States in a lot of dimensions. Mm-hmm. On financial administration was really horrible. Uh, he came in with several hundred million dollars in the bank. Uh, he left with a thirty, forty million cash deficit. It's very difficult to mm. do. It's very difficult to do a cash deficit in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. People talk about budget deficit. Budget deficit means I I would like to spend more money than I have, mm-hmm. but New Jersey you, you have to submit a balanced budget, an apparently balanced budget to the state for approval before he, he left for the Senate. Uh, his budget. For the calendar year 2013 was was approved around October, and it ended up with like a 40 million dollar hole in mm. cash. So on on that realm, his his financial management was was very poor. Mm. The water situation I thought was originally bad, but as time has evolved, has turned out to be much worse. Mm. Yeah. So you're 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 really committed. It seems to work. I'm kind of boring. (laughs) No, but most people do not live in a place or near a place, at least, they they grew up. Uh, Why do you care so much about that city? I mean, why do you care so much about yourself? So Newark (laughs) is so much a part of you? I mean, it's it's 
things that I know. Partly, I, I think I have comparative advantage in Newark. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. And there are a lot of good people there who probably aren't being as well served by a lot of things that, that are going on as, as they should be. And a lot of those people who aren't being well served are, are people I know. Lastly, what's your hope for the future of Newark? What do you hope for it? I, I hope for a good school system, uh, which is possible. And I hope for changes in how race is looked at in the United States that would allow a city that has a large proportion of Hispanics and African Americans to be looked at as kind of a normal place. Okay. So we'll end there, but I do have a congratulations for you. Uh, you recently won a Senate seat <laughs> on the Faculty Senate, which is We're Columbia's... A, a, tough, a, tough, a tough election. Columbia's university-wide governing body, and you won by a landslide. So One to zero. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations, Senator O'Flattery. Thank you. Thanks for coming through the Dean's Table. Thank you. The Dean's Table is produced by Destry Maria Sibley, with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. Our lead researcher is Kella Dieterville. Our branding is by Jessica Lillian. Our theme music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris.